Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast centered at the intersection of queer healthcare, research, and education. On behalf of Howard Brown Health here in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I identify as a uh, cis, white, gay man. Uh, I'm also a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible honor to uh, sit down with people from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining me today is Alyssa Katias. Alyssa, um, thank you so much for coming. Would you mind sharing what your role is here at Howard Brown and your preferred pronouns, please? Sure, Matt. So my name is Alyssa Katias. I use she, her pronouns. And I am a psychotherapist and a social worker on the mental health team at the Howard Brown Health Counseling Center. On the mental health team. Uh, I say it that way because I know, especially right now, post-COVID with everything going on, the mental health team is uh, trying to to do the best and and, and satisfy this immense need that our communities are having right now for mental health services. So uh, I want to extend a huge thank you for taking the time to to come in and talk with us. The topic for today, and it's going to sound really broad, is queer relationships. Uh, And we were doing some back and forth before you came in uh, about kind of where to take this episode. And my, my thought process behind it was I, you know, I came out when I was... well, I'm 28 now, and I guess I came out when I was like 22 or 23. But then I I lived with my parents for like four years after that and really didn't have any experience with, you know, queer relationships, what that was all like. And then I kind of moved here and uh, from my own experience and listening to people of different queer identities and their experiences, there's just queer relationships in general just kind of operate differently or it seems like this this whole new world where there's unwritten rules and and different challenges than you know straight relationships may face and so I just kind of wanted to maybe do a queer relationships 101 uh, to kind of um, unpack some of these things um, and I'll also add a disclaimer here again we are in a different conference room than normal so if you hear footsteps or doors creaking or whatever that's just the nature of this podcast so um Speaking broadly, what, uh, I guess we'll start from your your point of view. What kind of um, relationship, uh, you know, issues or, or trauma do you tend to see in your role here at Howard Brown? What's like the most common thing? Yeah, thanks for that question, Matt. So, most of my clients, if not all of them, are trauma survivors in some way, shape, or form. So that's a, that's everything and anything from emotional abuse. Uh, gaslighting, manipulation, intimate partner violence, physical abuse, sexual abuse, sexual assault, both in childhood and adulthood and throughout the lifespan. I also work with queer relationships, and those issues are very similar to what you know I might see if I was working with a cishet couple with some added differences. So things about communication, boundaries, managing conflict. And the biggest differences are in a queer relationship, you would have to take into account, I would have to take into account with the relationship I'm working with, more and multiple forms of social oppression that cishet couples do do not face in the same way, as well as the systems around us that are in place. So everything from the healthcare system, the education system, criminal justice, transportation, 
any system really, even like the entertainment and the wedding industry mm. around discrimination and marginalization that uh, queer folks face that usually cishet people don't face in the same way. It sounds like, uh, and listeners of the podcast that have been here for a while know, we always talk about intersectionality, which is like the the layering of, of different identities or, or different systems on top of each other to create a really multifaceted identity or problem to solve. And it sounds like your kind of day-to-day is picking apart all of those different things about how they relate to either somebody's trauma or somebody's relationship and, and how to get the best results out of that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and something that you said earlier about, you know, about your own coming out and how you didn't know much about queer relationships. Um, and it, there seems to be different and unwritten rules. I think that's actually a very common experience, or it can be. And sometimes what happens, depending on the age that someone comes out, you know, you miss out on the adolescent dating period where you're getting to know yourself as well as who you are within the context of an adolescent relationship that may not have, that does not have the same pressure as an adult relationship. And that's because of a variety of reasons. That's because of um, families and school systems and education systems that are not supportive of people coming out, as well as, you know, being, you know, worse scenarios, being kicked out of the home, being asked to leave, and, and, and that sort of trauma history where being able to date and enjoy yourself while you're young may not be realistic, as well as there is a handful of people, myself included, who did not know about their identity until later in life. And, you know, because of the way even media, you know, ha- media is doing a much better job now of having more representation. It never occurred to me that I would have any other life than being married to a man. It never occurred to me. Um, of course, until, you know, I met I met a woman. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that's, some of, that's some of the extra baggage or... Um, extra story, I'll say. Yeah, that queer people carry. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of kicking myself because I'm looking at uh, the questions I had laid out for today, and the whole kind of delayed experience that queer people might have is something I hadn't thought of. That is so obvious, and that everybody experiences. Where, you know, in some cases, you might be experiencing things for the first time in your mid twenties, mid thirties, whatever it may be. That most uh, or some. Um, cis straight people might have experienced in high school. So what kind of impact does that have on the way that we approach these relationships when they are things that we probably would have normally experienced, you know, in our teens, but we're doing them now later on in life? Does that change how, like, I know we have systems and stuff, and so now all of a sudden we're adults paying bills and that factors in, but what are the other ways? You know, on on one end of the scale, there could be, sort of acting out and rebellion and, you know, d- like this delayed adolescence. Um, finally, when someone maybe escapes or frees themselves from an unaffirming or an abusive home, there's this new kind of freedom that, that, is, that is freedom that's, that it may it may be be hard, you know, you may be managing just meeting basic needs day to day. 
And I also don't want to paint this picture either. I really don't want to paint this picture either, that somehow queer people are broken and that we can't do relationships because we learned a hell of a lot of other stuff along the way that other people did not learn. Mm -hmm. And so we have a resiliency to tap into from our history, being queer people, and from the history of the things that we have faced and survived that also helps us in relationships in different ways that, again, cishet people don't necessarily have in the same way. I, I, I think that's brilliantly said. Uh, you hear that sentiment, maybe not always so directly, but that, you know, where, you know, queer people just aren't well-suited for relationships or, you know, it, it's harder for them to be successful. And then I love the point of, like, we've learned a lot about ourselves that, you know, at first glance may not apply to relationships, but we can, like you said, tap into that resiliency. And I think that's beautiful. Um, the other thing that I was not always aware of, but was became quickly aware of upon like moving to Chicago and joining like a, a semi-well-rounded queer community is just different types of queer relationships. Um, in growing up in a small town religious uh, background, I mean, the idea of a gay relationship was, you know, um, a monogamous one-on-one -on -one gay relationship was forward-thinking enough for me, and I didn't think that there was more beyond that, and then I came here and there's polycules and ethical non-monogamy and open relationships and, you know, people just have different partners and for different things. And, and it was just a lot, a lot to, to handle. So can we kind of give a flashcard round of like what, you know, possible terms people may have heard and what they are? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll give the technical, some of the technical terms okay. maybe, and then, um, you know, maybe I could illustrate it for you with in story. Okay. That's probably ambitious, but we'll see. <laughs> so, you know, there is monogamy, of course. Um, then there's consensual non-monogamy. Um, then there's also polyamory and relationship anarchy. And, and then there's, you know, another term, ethical non-monogamy. Mm -hmm. And so as many varieties as there are people, as many varieties as, as there are queer folks, there are that many forms of relationship. So you, if you think about a relationship as meeting needs, you can think about relationships like friendships, uh, romantic relationships, and sexual relationships. However, there's also this broad array of partnerships that I think the queer community knows how to do better that have to do with things like financial support, raising children together, sharing expenses. I know of people who live in more intentional communities who, for example, may pool all their resource to, resources together in order to buy a home and to center friendship in their life or to center other forms of relationships in order to meet certain needs as an adult. And, and then where the romance and the sex are like a separate part of that. Of course, within the within the broad spectrum of what a queer relationship can look like, there can be things that look more traditional or that look more like what you would see with cishet straight couples where people are living together, they're partnered, they're married, they uh, may or may not raise children together, they have pets together, plants, you know, all <laughs> sorts of property, whatever, whatever 
whatever people want. And so within all of those forms, it can become very, like there's just so much possibility that can happen. And all of it requires a very basic foundation of knowing yourself well, knowing your needs, being able to communicate and listen well, being able to manage your own stress, being able to sit with uncomfortable feelings. So your own, as well as someone else's, as well as the number of people that, but number of partners that you choose to have. And so it requires, when you have a non-traditional relationship or when you have an expansive relationship, I'll say, it requires different skills that take extra time to learn. And um, I think it's all really important and valuable. Yeah, you, you said a lot and, and said it so well. Uh, so, so thank you for that. The, the first term that um, caught my ear uh, was relationship anarchy. Um, can you give a quick synopsis of what that means specifically? Because that's, that's one I had not heard before. Yeah, so, I, so I'm not an expert in this. Yeah. And I think it has to do with um, just not necessarily centering a, a, a romantic relationship as the center of your life. Mm. Um, I would refer to Dr. Elizabeth or Dr. Ellie Sheff's work, particularly on polyamory, to get more into the technical definitions of what these things mean. And um, of course, the one that you asked me about is the one that I that's, know the least about, but that's okay. Um, that would be the resource I would point, point okay. you to. Um, Ellie, Dr. Ellie Sheff is an academic and legal expert on polyamory in the United okay. States. So yeah, if I had to wager, and I could be wrong, it sounds like it's just the, I mean, if you think growing up and in the media, you know, cishet, uh, the, the, the dream is uh, um, monogamous romantic sexual relationship. And so maybe relationship anarchy is just being intentional about separating that kind of what we've been programmed to want as far as relationships and partnerships and, and kind of just pursuing it in a maybe more pragmatic manner. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think, it, I think it has different definitions for different people, but I, I think one of the main components of it is that it takes away relationship as a central component, uh, or, rom or romantic relationship, okay. I should say, as a central component of which to build the foundation of your life upon. Um, Gotcha. But it doesn't it doesn't mean like chaos or uh, disarray. There's just, different yeah. structures and functions that people build gotcha. um, that are creative, and uh, you know the only limit is is your imagination. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, like like I said, I ask because it, it is kind of a name that makes you know people's head perk up because yeah, anarchy. But um, <laughs> like we said, we're not experts in that area specifically. So um, do your own research. We love continuing education. Um, so it strikes me in these variations uh, on relationships that so much of society and so much um, of the way things operate is geared towards uh, like a, a monogamous um, cishet relationship. What comes to mind is like... Uh, Emergency contacts, you get one, and the when you choose, like, relationship, it's, like, father, mother, sibling, a partner, that's it. So you're like, well, sure. what is this person to me? And so there's there's no room for nuance and things like that. Uh, and, you know, 
just the social norms of the way that we talk to each other. A lot of people slip into like uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, that type of uh, language when people might not necessarily be using those. For for a lot of people, it it, it seems difficult to separate romantic and sexual. Uh, for somebody to to have one relationship that serves one need and one relationship that serves another, and, and either not have them blend or not, you know, how, how is that just a function of is doing that successfully just a function of knowing yourself well? How does somebody do that successfully? Yeah, well, I think um, I'm reminded of my friends who are. Um, who are demisexual or asexual, who talk about this with me. And um, I think it's absolutely, totally possible and normal to have your romantic feelings separate from sexual feelings. It's also normal to have them combined. Uh, just to give you some examples, like you can go on quote unquote dates with your friends where there's emotional intimacy involved. So I like to go to the theater I like to go to stand-up comedy. I like to go to concerts. I think those things can involve emotional intimacy or, or not necessarily. And they also are things maybe that people would traditionally do with their one romantic partner or one sexual partner that in the queer world we expand and maybe do with more of our friends uh, or... Um, just so, and, it, and it's also just ways of, if, if you can bring it down smaller, practicing intimacy, practicing being open and vulnerable. And I don't mean like practicing, I mean practicing emotional intimacy yeah. with, with, your, with your friends and people who are close to you. Um, because maybe some of those people who you would normally, quote unquote, talk to don't accept your lifestyle, don't accept your identity don't know about your identity. And so you end up, maybe things that you would share, or, or maybe those people have passed. So things that maybe you would share with your parents or your siblings or your aunts and uncles, maybe those are the same people that aren't accepting of you. So instead, you have to practice vulnerability and intimacy with friends. And it's a lot of pressure to just have that all with one romantic partner which is why I think, you know, friendships and the supportive communities that we build are really so important. I tend to keep my community small, um, but that—that's just me. Others have others have bigger others have bigger communities. And um, yeah, so to answer your question and to circle back, like it's absolutely possible to separate your romantic and your sexual feelings, and it's also totally normal if those things are together and combined. Or somewhere along that spectrum. Yeah. I think that's an excellent way to reframe that. That, you know, maybe there was some, you know, emotional honesty and vulnerability and, and emotional relationships that we ordinarily would have cultivated with different, like, family members or people earlier in our life. But we're, you know, looking for that later in life. And so I also love the concept of, you know, it's unfair to put that all on one person or it's difficult to have that all on one person. So spreading out those emotional vulnerabilities and relationships with, you know, various people that you trust makes a lot of sense. Um, and that kind of dovetails into the next question. Do you think that's why non quote unquote non-traditional relationships are more common in queer communities because of, you know, these 
things that we've we've gone through growing up and that's that's why we kind of create the relationships that we we need as opposed to just letting them happen maybe i don't know yeah absolutely matt i i agree with what you what you just said i also think uh you know i I would refer to an essay from dean spade called for lovers and fighters where dean talks about um polyamory but it's more than about polyamory it's about it's about as as queer people as people in the lgbtqia plus community the limits sometimes there are limits around us and the limits of the cishet world are haven't fit haven't fit what we've needed and haven't fit what we've wanted and so how can we safely and consensually and ethically sort of renegotiate some of those some of those boundaries because we have faced tremendous social oppression or being kicked out of our families or not accepted or we faced other traumas in our lives that make it hard to that make it that make it hard mm-hmm. and and certainly not that's not the case for everyone i'm just speaking about possibilities here and i think that one of the things that we have to do, that we do do as, as queer people when, for example, children are not necessarily the center of our world. You know, it takes, as queer people, it takes a lot of privilege. It takes a lot of money. It, sometimes it takes science involved, the legal system, in order to be able to have and raise children. And that used to be, or that is some of the goals of traditional cishet marriage and building a society is, is, you know, having children and raising them. And um, instead, as queer people, we have to also, we have the, the value of our chosen family. And what that means is that we have to recreate and reimagine how we spend time together, how we provide for each other, how we celebrate together, how we experience joy. And one of the main things I want to impart is that we heal through our relationship with ourselves as well as our relationships with others. And your romantic and or sexual relationship can be super important in in helping to heal you. And there's a delicate balance because I think you're not fully, you, you can heal yourself, of course, of course you can. And I think in the context of relationships, in the context of safe, supported relationships, where a romantic or sexual relationship can be one of those, that's how we heal. And that's, and we also heal through sharing stories with each other and through, through creating new narratives together. That's how we heal and that's how we grow and that's how we move towards our collective liberation that was so well said and uh i always a little bit in in my head am taking notes on like what parts i want to feature on tiktok and thing and i want that whole paragraph but uh that yeah that was extremely well said and i i think it's kind of this concept of like you know all bets are off because we weren't you know, the, the, the cishet dream is not for us. So now we're able to create and imagine relationships that work for us in the ways that we need them to, in the ways that we want them to. So, uh, I love that sentiment. Um, 
by the same token, I mean, phrasing it that way sounds very easy uh, and, and um, you know, fun and, and uh, idealistic. But for a lot of people, there are difficulties in queer relationships, uh, either logistically, emotionally, uh, dealing with trauma, um, etc. Et um, what does it take to have a successful queer relationship? Um, and what should you do, you know, if you're experiencing problems and, and aren't sure where to turn? Because I know, like, for me, uh, I've been with my boyfriend for a year and a half now. Um, and at the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm having thoughts or I need to talk to somebody about something. But if you're, you don't have a, a huge queer network around you, um, it's kind of hard to know where to turn or t- to get advice because every, everybody has thoughts on relationships and it's hard to know who to listen to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling. I'm, I'm realizing I'm doing a lot of smiling and <laughs> nodding math, which is not uh, conducive to the podcast format. I just um, want to offer my, you know, my support to you. Okay. And so um, I think I'll start with just saying that one of the main things that having a successful queer relationship requires is having a good relationship with yourself. And I, don't, I know that may kind of sound kind of cliche, but these are some of the, the traits and the qualities that I think are important. Being self-aware, being self-reflective, being a good communicator, being aware of your own needs and your limitations, and being open to talking about your strengths and vulnerabilities. And repeating again what I said earlier about being able to sit with hard feelings, so both yours and someone else's, your partner, your partner's. I also think what's important is a commitment to joy, again, yours and someone else's, and a commitment to building a life together if that is your agreement together. If not, that's okay. And it's important to be open and flexible and also have boundaries. And one of the things also super important to me is I identify as a relational therapist, which just means that What's, what's harmed in relationship is also healed in relationship and a therapeutic relationship as an example of one of those relationships mm. where things can heal is this practice of mutuality where both people's feelings, if, if there are two of you, needs and thoughts and matter and are given equal importance. That's so important. I think sometimes, you know, in the cishet world, and not always, I don't want to be always you know, knocking the cishet world. Um, But sometimes there's like a person that gives like the last call Mm. and it doesn't, doesn't always work out. doesn't always work out that way, whether it's a a straight relationship or or not, or queer relationship. And so I think those are some of the aspects of having a successful queer relationship. And I also really like what you said, Matt, about having people around you who are, who are queer, who look like you and who look like the type of relationship you want to have. That is super important because we don't have a lot of examples of that in our community. I mean, we're starting to now with the, with the way, you know, streaming has changed and there's so many more platforms now. And so I'm super grateful to that. And um, at the end of the day, you know, there's no course there's no even schooling, unless you specialize in this, on how to be in relationship, how to even have friendship with others, especially as adults. And so, um, why do we teach? Why do we teach 
people and children, everything else, but we don't we don't necessarily teach good solid relationship skills, good solid communication skills, how to manage conflict, how to manage when there's an imbalance. And so a lot of those things we have to teach ourselves or we absorb through seeing the relationships around us. So when possible, it's important to seek out other people who have the type of relationship that you want to just have an example. And so you feel less alone and you feel less vulnerable and afraid. Yeah, I think that's that makes so much sense. And I is it is there I mean, obviously aside from therapy, but I'm thinking like what if what if you're in a relationship and there's not somebody around you that looks like you that has the kind of relationship you want? Is that then I mean, we we don't want to turn to Dr. Google when it comes to stuff. Of but course. what I mean, I guess you kinda of laid out in the original answer of like just like traits and qualities to look for in yourself and in your partner to ensure that your relationship has the best footing yes. possible. But I don't know, how do, how do we combat that sense of isolationism some people oh, might sure. feel if they're in a small town, if they're alone, if they're that sole queer relationship in a high school where, you know, there's nobody else, what do you do? Yeah, and I, I didn't answer your, your other, the second part of that question is what should you do if you're experiencing problems? No. Um, well, yeah, I think it, it requires, well, first of all, it's important, you know, because this is this is part of what I do every day is assessing for interpersonal violence and assessing, you know, one way to check for that is, is your life getting smaller while your partner or partner's lives are getting bigger? Um, and, and, you know, what about your safety and sense of empowerment? And, you know, abuse can take many forms. And so if you're experiencing problems in your relationship or you're not sure where to turn, I, I would invite you to take a personal inventory of your own stressors first. And maybe it's not your actual relationship that's bothering you. And then identify what you do to manage stress and try to take care of yourself more and get more support. And again, if, if getting support is hard for you, turning to um, one of my friends always talks about go going to Reddit or um, turning to some form of online community or online forum, which I think can also be friendly for people who are neurodiverse or um, people with social anxiety. Of course, all of this got complicated and uh, you know screwed up, for lack of a, better, of a technical term, during the you know, during COVID, during, oh, yeah. even now. Yep. And if you need more positive coping strategies. To, to take it upon yourself to learn them. There's so many free resources out there, like podcasts like this, like apps, books, uh, meetups, you know, having your own therapy, whether it's individual or group, um, even going to a 12-step program, if that's something that you need, and being able to just to see different ways people get support from each other. And I know that I, I know that isolation and loneliness is a huge is a huge problem in our community. It's something that many of my clients face. And um, I, I, it's really hard to have a good relationship with yourself when you feel really isolated and alone. So I, I welcome, you know, lots of ideas, you know, well, from you, from others about what would help someone feel less alone. 
I think sometimes in, you know, even in my life, I've turned to animals. I've turned to hobbies and interests. And hopefully through those interests, you know, I've, I've met more people and I've met people like me. And so I, I, would, I, I would go to things that where I feel strong, where I feel like I can make an impact or where I just feel curious and I'm willing to try something new. Um, and there are, there are, you know, I, I'm going to say this, and sometimes I don't even believe it myself. There are more queer people out there than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not all, we, we don't all quote unquote look queer. Um, I, I often do not get read as queer because of my, you know, more femme presentation. I literally have to be wearing rainbows <laughs> to be recognized as queer. So yeah. I hope that's, I hope that's. I feel like that was a long answer, but I no, think that's helpful. Um, and for everybody listening, um, you do have uh, rainbow earrings on <laughs> yes. today, which is why that comment makes you laugh. But I loved the point about finding um, a, a hobby or a community that you feel drawn to. Because for me, when I, I said I came out and I was living at home, I was... Uh, and I'm still in, am into like reality TV shows like Survivor and Big Brother and things like that, those type of contest shows. But there's a community online uh, that plays these over the internet. So like just a random person will host it. They're not like official or anything, but um, through that there's a queer subgroup of people um, that enjoy those games. And I got kind of looped into that and it's people from all over the world of different identities and ethnicities. Um, Within that group, we, you know, have somebody in India and Australia and England and all of these things. And, you know, there's a, a channel for general discussion. And through that process, I was like, wow, I'm, you know, the, the things that I'm feeling or frustrations with my parents or my identity or whatever, um, or my own relationships are not that, you know, unsolvable. Other people are going through those things. So I think that's a brilliant point of, of you know, um, joining in communities that <clears throat> you feel welcome in and can find that kind of, um, uh, not sympathy, shared experience, I guess, I guess you could say. Um, the next question I want to dive into is, uh, I, I and I brought this up before we started recording, I'd sent you a list of questions, and one of the questions centered around cis gay men. Uh, and you were like, you know what, they get a lot of airtime. Let's talk about something else. And I love that because, and I love that part of my job in that I stay getting corrected on things. And so we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk uh, about what you mentioned, which is, um, you, what's unique about queer relationships amongst queer women of color. And I love that theme because that's something that's come up in other areas of the podcast where a lot of gay and queer messaging in general and discussions are geared towards cis white gay men a lot of the time. Uh, so let's put that aside and talk about how what we've been talking about relates to queer women of color specifically. Yeah, thank you. This is something near and dear to my heart as I, as I do identify as a, as a queer woman of color. Well, so I'll start with the, I'll start with the bad news and then I'll shift. So as I've mentioned, there's, there are multiple forms of oppression that queer women of color face. And that's not just queer women of color, but just to center, center them in this, in this conversation for, for the time being the the multiple forms of oppression include, you know, misogyny, misogynoir, which is specific hatred towards black women, Mm -hmm. Um, homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia, of course, racism, 
statistically earning less money than cis men. And thinking about other more marginalized members within the queer women of color community, so people, so the ableism, the ageism, and the xenophobia. So I'm thinking particularly of the. Un- <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, you're good. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. So I'm thinking particularly of the disabled women in my community, as well as older older folks, as well as people who are undocumented. That's who I'm specifically thinking of as more marginalized within this community, as well as those of us who are um, trauma survivors in a, in a variety of in a variety of ways. And also the attack on our civil liberties that's ongoing and pervasive and um, feels feels never ending. And so it's not all bad news. And how do you combat this? I think one way is that is to know yourself and to know your worth, to work on healing your traumas, to make healing and self-care a priority in your life, to continue to build your supportive community. Sometimes within this community itself, there's competition and this sense of tearing each other down. And I think that happens. I spoke about this before at uh, a talk I did at the Center on Halstead, but that's when these oppressions get internalized and the internalized oppression goes unnamed, unhealed and unchecked. And I think that results sometimes in lashing out at each other. And so how do you combat this? Well, again, the limit is your imagination and really centering joy and self-care, healing, pleasure, and rely, remembering who you are. And I know that that gets kind of said often, but the, the, we also have intergenerational resilience in our bones. So specifically, I'll talk specifically about um, Filipino women and also a little bit about, about black women, if I may, that we are literally the mothers and the nurturers of the world around the world that many people's children are raised by Filipina or black women. Many people's older, their their parents who are aging are taken care of in the hospitals and nursing, nursing homes and at home by caregivers who are Filipina and who are black. And what happens is with that, we have a wealth of nurturing and care and love that I think can be extremely beautiful when we center that, when we center that in our lives and when we center that as part of our relationships. And I always turn to my friends who are artists, who are um, dancers, who are activists. They always know, I feel like they always know and I turn to them, I turn to people who are young, youth, who, who haven't lost their faith in the power, in, in, the, in our limitless imagination and our limitless power, and who have maintained a connection to their intergenerational resilience without even knowing it, without even knowing what's that, what that's called yet. And so that is who I turn to, that is who I, I request you know, turning to, especially if you're another queer woman of color like myself, and how um, that is just, you know, 
I can't say it enough that that is just so beautiful and so powerful. And I think it gets lost because of all these other things that I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about, like the oppression and the, you know, bad boundaries and bad communication. And when we remember who we are and when we tap into that, I do believe there's limitless potential for healing and growth and joy. Whew, that's so well said. And, and something that I obviously hadn't uh, considered is that kind of shared, you know, cultural, um, I'm going to, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth over and over again, trying to express my thoughts on this correctly, but, uh, that kind of shared cultural background of, uh, you know, being the caregiver and, and all the, you know, intergenerational resiliency and all the things that you touched on really facilitate really extraordinary relationships between queer women, queer women of color, when you're able to tap into that identity and that background and really channel that in a way that's healthy and, and allows those individuals to, to overcome all, all the things that you mentioned, the, the intersectionality and, and oppression and, and, and stuff like that. So how, what, does, does, that, does that make for any additional challenges with queer relationships in, in women of color or, or you know, how, how else does that impact how these relationships function or how they're perceived? Yeah, of course. Well, I, so I mentioned that, you know, I mentioned how that can be portrayed, in, you know, in, in the healthiest way. And that's not always how, how life works. And that's not always how things go down. Um, there is a tremendous burden and the tremendous emotional, energetic, spiritual toll on being a caregiver. Um, even, even when you want to do it, and even if it's beyond a sense of duty, when you want to do it. And I also think what I mentioned sort of quickly about how when our internalized oppression goes unnamed, unhealed, and unchecked, and we take it out on each other, it can be very ugly, and it can be very painful. And I know those experiences firsthand of when um, queer women of color have turned on each other and, and, and didn't even know. And so that makes relationships complicated. I think it's an even deeper wound when that hurt or that pain comes from another queer woman of color. Mm -hmm. I expect it from certain people. Like I, I, I expect there to be a microaggression in certain places, or I expect me to be disappointed. And it stings more when it's from someone that looks and sounds like, 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 looks and sounds like me. It stings more. And so whenever that happens, I have to remember to recenter and reground myself and to tap into a supportive network beyond queer women of color, as well, you know, as well as within queer women of color. And to, again, to remember to remember who I am, and to remember to remember where I come from, and not in a way that is romanticizing my ancestors or anything, but in a way that helps me to stay strong and helps me to stay grounded and centered, um, and also moving forward towards my life dreams and goals. Yeah, I obviously you know, that is your unique experience, but I think there's 
aspects of that uh, that are true of any queer identity where you know those microaggressions or things that might not be okay with you will always sting more when they come from somebody who looks like you or has a shared identity as you and then when that does happen you know best practices is like you said to recenter and regroup yourself and understand you know how you got to where you are and, and your thought processes and you know things like that and and to maybe extend grace to the person you know I don't know maybe yeah. maybe that's a stretch yeah so I think you're you're asking about how can others how can others outside of queer women of color maybe maybe heal or maybe manage when things are not going well in relationships. Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Or, and and not even necessarily, uh, relationships, but just, just, um, understanding that everybody's on their own trajectory and path when it comes to self-understanding and self-realizing. So when, you know, for example, if you were in an open relationship or, you know, had multiple partners and somebody who has the same identity as you might look at that and be like, well, how, you know, I don't understand that. I don't understand how that's possible. They, they're not, they haven't, you know, come to terms with the possibilities that are out there. Again, this is a stretch and it yeah, might sure. be in the weeds here, but. Sure. So I think it's, I think it's a great question. And, you know, one of the, you know, keeping in mind, and, and as, a, as a psychotherapist, I tend to like look for the meaning and behavior. Mm-hmm. That, that's my training and that's that's it's what I just sort of do naturally even yeah. if I'm not in a therapeutic role not that I'm I'm not therapizing, therapizing. Everybody. <laughs> no I'm not doing that it's just the lens from which the, yeah. that I see the world sometimes mm-hmm. and so I think about you know what might that person be struggling with that I'm having problems with what might be hard for them now I take into account what do I need to hold myself accountable for? What do I need to repair? What have I done? That expression, cleaning up your side of the street, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. And also believing, and for me, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I do consider myself to be spiritual. And, you know, I do tap into a lot of practices. That's for a different, that's for a different <laughs> podcast. I believe in people's capacity to change and work towards their highest good, even amongst incredible odds that are internal, that are from someone's personal trauma, and that are thrust upon us by the system in which we live, the systems in which we live. And I trust that everyone's in their own process. And I know that there can be a lot of hurt along the way. And as long as I continue with my own process, because that's what I have control over, as long as I clean up my side of the street, I hope against hope sometimes that there will be a good outcome for all people involved in a relationship, a polycule, you know, what Uh, whatever the format someone, whatever the format people agree upon and choose together. And I think that even though I've been, you know, I I tend to be more of a practical or a realist. I think this is the part of me that is a, is a continual seeker. Mm 
and I won't even venture to say optimist, but it's it's in it's in believing in something bigger than myself that um, that's sort of guiding things. And I and I don't that that sounds like very religious, and I know there's a lot of religious trauma in our community. I I don't necessarily mean it in that way. Whether mm-hmm. it's Mother Earth or the universe or some sort of order in in the world. Um, I, I I still I still even though I'm a trauma therapist and I talk to 25 to 30 people every week who have faced horrendous things, I still believe in this capacity to heal and our capacity to be good to each other. I that hmm. So well said, and I feel like I'm uh, a broken record because I've said that after every response that you've given me. Um, I had one more question, um, but I'm just going to kind of take what you said and apply it to it because my question was, in queer relationships or dating circles or however you want to phrase it, they're smaller than cishet dating circles. There's more what? They're smaller. Smaller, There's just a smaller number of, of people for us to date. And so you might be forced to, you know, if you date somebody within, uh, you know, a school organization or a club and things don't work out, you'll be seeing that person a lot because it's just how our communities work sometimes. Uh, And the question was, you know, how do we work through that? But I think your last answer kind of applies to this as well, where, you know, you can clean up your side of the street, you can focus on your own, you know, higher self and healing and, 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 uh, kind of give yourself the best footing for for moving on and to be, um, you know, graceful when it comes to stuff and just kind of hope that the other person in that situation does it too. Um, and and I, that applies whether it's an ex or somebody that, you know, your uh, ex and your friend are dating or, or you know, however that works, um, there's a lot of potential for maybe tension in relationships in queer communities. And I think that principle that you said earlier kind of applies to this. Is that a a misjudgment there? No, not a misjudgment. Yes, it applies. And I'll also just offer some practical, some practical suggestions. So I actually navigate this often in my role as a therapist and a consultant within the commu- within this community. So that's even a smaller community mm-hmm. that I within. And the reason I have to manage it is because I have to work towards respecting my clients' privacy and their confidentiality as well as my own, as well as my own um, confidentiality and privacy. And so I have, you know, give offer yourself sort of an escape hatch Often these things, you know, happen by surprise and you, you weren't expecting it. And that's usually when it c- cuts you or it, it catches you off guard the most. So offer yourself an escape hatch, you know, letting letting your friends know, letting the people around you know that you just you need to leave and that you need to explain later. Um, if it, In case you're not ready for it, in case you haven't been able to find, you know, been able to negotiate your boundaries within yourself you're you're not you know you're not in your most self-actualized state you know necessarily in every moment and so you're just like oh i can't tap into that sense of emotional maturity i gotta i gotta Mm -hmm. cut and run allow yourself that yeah and 
continue to work on the things that I've been suggesting and that I've been offering. Um, and, and ask yourself why and ask yourself what you need in that moment and, and try to give yourself that and, and ask people, supportive people around you to help you with that. Um, because it, it, it happens and it happens more often than we like. Uh, I've also heard from others that also, you know, taking a break, maybe a little, maybe this doesn't always work, but taking a break, maybe from what you normally do to try something else. If you're worried about running into someone, not that you have to go away permanently, that's not possible, Yeah. but just take a break and give yourself some time and space and slow it down, majorly slow everything down. That's, that's usually, that's usually a really good answer for lots of things is just to slow everything down, slow it down. I love that. Yeah. Slow it down, change your routine, take a step back and, and kind of reassess everything, which I mean, sounds like a hard task, but I, I understand completely what you mean. So, um, we were, it feels like we've only been talking for 15 minutes, but we're going on almost an hour. So we'll, we'll wrap things up here. Um, final last words. I always like to ask guests if they, you know, is there a moral to the story or a words of wisdom that you want our listeners to take home regarding uh, queer relationships, their relationships with themselves, um, things like that. What, what tidbit should we take out of this? Well, I, I think I'll just repeat if I can cheat what I said earlier. Yeah is that we heal through our relationships with ourselves, our relationships with others, and the stories that we create with each other and the stories that we tell each other. And that happens across the time-space continuum. I love it. And so I'll leave you with that. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Melissa. The running joke here on the show is that we'll have to have you back because I say that to everybody, but I do mean it genuinely in that everybody I interview has so much, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and uh, like we said a couple times this podcast, there's a lot of room for more discussion on these topics. So uh, maybe in the future, but um, for now, we'll let you get back to, to all the good work that you're doing. So thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you so much, Matt, for inviting me. Of course. And that has been our episode about queer relationships. If you are interested in anything Howard Brown related to what we talked about today, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.